Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 78, Homework. Today's proverb comes from Callimachus. I'll read it twice. Big book, big bore. Once more. Big book, big bore. Now it's customary on this show to skip over, really, the author or the speaker of the proverb, but I have to say a word about Callimachus. Big book, big bore. This is a sentiment expressed by a third century librarian from Alexandria, a man who presided over the most prestigious, glorious library in the history of mankind. Callimachus was also said to have authored more than 800 books, few of which have survived to this day. Now, what's at the heart of this proverb can also be understood in several other better-known proverbs, like, brevity is the soul of wit, Shakespeare, or, of the writing of many books there is no end, And much study is wearisome to the flesh. Solomon, of course. All three of these proverbs really are quite rare because they're more popular among students than teachers. They're more popular among the youth than the elderly. 
As a matter of fact, the first time I ever heard of the writing of many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh, it was quoted to me by a 17-year-old. That was my first encounter with that fine bit of wisdom. For most proverbs, there's something sort of annoying and grandfatherly about the wisdom or the exhortation. You hear most proverbs and you think, yes, yes, I know that I would be better off eating an apple every day. I know early to bed, early to rise. I've heard all of them before, and really I wish there was time for it, but I'm sure I'll get to it someday. That's the sort of standard account that we give to proverbs. We know they're true, but they're sort of annoyingly true. And yet, big book, big bore, it's a punkish kind of claim. Now, if you squint, you can kind of hear the Henri grandfather saying this. And yet there's also this sort of ne'er-do-well sentiment that runs down the center of it. Maybe there's a ne'er-do-well sentiment in the Henri grandfather, too. The Henri grandfather is willing to say unflattering truths. You imagine, on the punkish end of things, a copy of Thucydides' Peloponnesian War being handed out. And that's this 800-page monster and the kiss-up student receiving it and sort of holding it in his hands and saying, and think, in 16 weeks we'll know everything contained in this august volume. Whereas the sort of narrative well sighs and says what everyone's thinking, probably even the teacher, which is big book, big bore. Now the quote is not, don't read big books. And the quote is not, there's no point to reading big books. Rather, the quote is really more suggesting that we shouldn't pretend big books are something that they're not. You're not excited by the fact a book is long. Instead, the opposite is true. You're far more interested if a friend is recommending a book to you. And they sort of roll through a basic description of the plot or the premise or the argument that you're going to encounter if you read it. And you stand there nodding your head. Yes. Well, that sounds very fascinating. What you're really waiting for, and what you don't often hear, but what you're really waiting for at the end of this description is, and it's short, too. When you hear, and it's short, too, you're like, well, I might actually read this book. And all of a sudden, it becomes very interesting, far more interesting than it was before. And it's short, too. Oh, really? Well, that changes everything quite a bit. I was listening to your description of this book politely. Not a chance I was going to read it. But if it's short, well, how bad could it be? If it's bad, it's only going to be bad for a little bit. Everyone's more excited to read something when they hear that it's short. You don't wish books were longer than they are. You wish that they were shorter. Think of the last 20 books you've read. You would have been fine if 19 of them had been half as long as they were. Right now I'm reading Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. What a delightful piece of work this is. I would be fine if it was half as long as it was. And I'm enjoying every page. But still, 
I'm a busy guy. I got things to do. And if you can trim a 400 page book down to 160, I can tell you're a man that values my time as well. Academia is not without its pretenders, without its fakers. A lot of teachers pretend that school is easier than it actually is and more exciting than it actually is. It's more fun than it actually is. Like read Augustine's Confessions. Read book one of Augustine's Confessions. The Confessions, it's short. You'll like it. It's much shorter than his other book. Read book one of the Confessions. Augustine complains endlessly about how often his teachers wasted his time when he was in school. He had to read all sorts of pointless, tasteless, vicious books, like the Aeneid, he complains. And he's willing to say in the midst of all of it that the discipline he received in school was good. He's glad he knows how to read and write. Math is very helpful. But he still often complains that much of it was a waste of time. This is Augustine, the father of Western theology, complaining about school. There's even points of book one that sound like whining about school. If I heard my own kid saying the sorts of things he says about school, I'd send her to her room. Like, how dare you talk about school that way? You're reading classics. There's Augustine complaining about the Aeneid. Complaining about the Aeneid. Big book, big bore. Now, the teacher in me immediately wants to hedge my bets on this quote. But I can't. The City of God is a book I'm glad that I've read several times. It's a book I enjoy quoting, but not a book I have an ardent desire to pick up and read again. I've read the last 12 books of The City of God four or five times. That's enough. I've read them slowly, too. That's really why that book is tolerable. City of God, it's tolerable because all the chapters are quite short, which means you can justify a slow perusal of that book. When I used to teach that book at school, I'd spend half a year on 12 books, on 11 through 22. If you're not reading the City of God slowly, you're not reading it. And if you're reading the City of God slowly, there's a good chance that you're not reading it for school. There was a long period of time, I don't know if it's still the way this is, at New St. Andrews, where incoming freshmen would read the City of God in a week. And everybody talked about, oh, it's this difficult gauntlet that you have to run the City of God in a week. Maybe it wasn't actually a week. Maybe everybody just waited until the end and then forced themselves to read it for, read it all the way through in a week because they had been delinquent or what have you. But I don't think that's what it was. Maybe listeners who graduated from New St. Andrews 20 years ago can tell me if this is true or not. But I've met so many New St. Andrews students who went through this freshman week-long initiation where you do the whole city of God, who I've tried to talk to about the city of God, who have no recollection of this book whatsoever. Like, be in casual conversation with him. That's ah, like what Augustine says about life on earth being difficult. You know. Well, I don't know if I remember that. Didn't you read The City of God? Well, I don't remember any of it. 
It's because you read it in a week. You're not really reading the city of God if you read it in a week. If you're asking students to read the city of God in a week, I don't know what you're expecting of them. Big book, big bore. Is there not something exhilarating when you were in school, especially if you went to a classical school? Was there not something exhilarating when you were given a short book to read? You've been reading 400, 500, 600 page monsters. And then you show up for class and the teacher passes out the consolation of philosophy. (laughs) You hold it up in your hand. You see how far apart the covers are. Not very far. Is this the whole thing? Yep, that's the whole thing. Some very famous books are also quite short. And it's like the author winked at you from the cover. Like, I know you. I know you like a short one every now and again. Guess what? This is short, but it's real, too. It counts. It's a book. It's a whole book even though it's only 120 pages long. How good that felt. Constellation of Philosophy, The Little Prince, Death of Ivan Ilyich. Even The Old Man in the Sea. Like, you look at it, and it's short, and you feel like there's some relief in the world. That somebody understands the brevity of life, that you have things to do. You have places to go. You have work to do beyond books, beyond the classroom. And that that work is important, too. When you see a short book, you feel respected. You feel as though someone understands your struggle to do all the necessary things in a 24-hour day. And when someone hands you a big book, I'm sorry, even the city, somebody puts the city of God in your hand, And as soon as you see how big it is, you think to yourself, man, how many pages is this? And you flip to the back, and it's 1,200 pages long. And what you want to say is, man, who do you think I am? You think I'm made of time? You want to start complaining like an an old man when somebody gives you a 1,200-page book. Like, I don't have time for this. Are you really telling me? Are you really telling me? He couldn't make it any shorter than this? I don't believe that for one second. Like when you look at the Constellation of Philosophy, all 120 pages of it, you think, yeah, this is probably a short, tight, concise little argument about something. He might not have been able to make this one shorter. Same's true of Death of Ivan Ilyich. Little Prince, Old Man in the Sea. It's as long as it needs to be and no longer. Big book, big bore. This is one of the reasons why I started this show. Because I love Proverbs. Because they're short. (laughs) You can read Proverbs. You can read a collection of Proverbs. You can read Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus. Marcus Aurelius, Confucius, you can read any of those authors for two minutes and feel like you've been somewhere. Big book, big bore. Now, we can talk about boredom in different ways. 
And so before going on, I'll acknowledge some things that I've said on the subject of boredom before. Boredom is necessary for a good life. Not disputing this. Necessity is the mother of invention. Boredom is the mother of contemplation. In order to contemplate anything, you must pass through a state of boredom, no matter how brief it is. It may be a split second. But boredom leads to contemplation because we tire of the surface of things. We tire of the facade. And contemplation is the desire to delve below the surface, to get at the heart of something. Boredom is a natural consequence of a healthy mind. Healthy minds get bored, and then they move themselves beyond boredom. They move themselves out of boredom. So for most people, if you're bored and you can only seek out amusement and distraction, it's a sign that you don't have a healthy mind. A healthy mind moves from boredom to contemplation with ease. A weak mind encounters boredom and panics. A weak mind encounters boredom and just resides there. A healthy mind is not bored long enough to complain, I'm bored. And yet, boredom is a little bit like offense, giving offense and receiving offense. You've got to be slow to do either. And it's often the case that the person who receives offense is like the person who receives boredom and lingers there. A healthy mind can encounter offense and move on. A weak mind encounters offense and wallows in it. So oftentimes, boredom and offense are alike in that they emerge and we rest there for too long because we think too highly of ourselves. And yet, we must be careful to not give offense to other people and not to bore other people. So boredom isn't the end of the world, just like offense isn't the end of the world, despite what the modern man says. But you've got to be careful not to bore other people. From a very early age, for instance, I've tried to make my children aware of the fact that boring other people is a possibility. And the first way that I tried to explain this to them was in telling them how boring I found their lengthy Byzantine synopses of TV shows that they watched at their grandparents' house. They would go to their grandparents' house, they would spend the night, and then they would come home the next day and want to give a nine-minute summary of an episode of The Andy Griffith Show. I told them, summaries of TV shows are always boring. Unless it's The Simpsons. TV shows don't require a long narration on your part. If you watch The Andy Griffith Show when you go to your grandparents' house, just tell me I watched The Andy Griffith Show. It was the one about spaghetti, oregano. I know. I've seen it. I don't need to hear it all again. Describing a TV show in depth is not worth anyone's time to listen to. It bores them. And it's fitting to be bored when someone makes too, like radically too low an assessment of the value of your time. So, 
typically when the modern man gets bored, it's the result of a weak mind. But there are some, there are some instances where the one who is boring you deserves to know it. Like if you go to a classical Christian education conference and someone delivers a lousy lecture, just walk out of it. Better for them to be embarrassed and learn than for them to go on embarrassing themselves in front of their students and their school. It'll be a little embarrassing. It won't be all that offensive. Just walk out. (laughs) If they're wasting your time by boring you to death, just leave. Last weekend, I listened to most of Northanger Abbey, an audiobook. I found Austin's description of John Thorpe one of the most apt descriptions of the way that young men are tedious and dull. Interestingly enough, big book, big bore, it was true 2,300 years ago, and Jane Austen writing 200 years ago described the way that young men have the capacity to bore others in a way that's exactly similar or exactly like the way that they bore people today. John Thorpe, a boring character from Northanger Abbey, talks endlessly to anyone who will listen about his horse and his business prospects. And everyone has met that young man, the man who talks endlessly about his car and his investment opportunities. He talks about Bitcoin, how he saw it coming. He knew in advance it was going to be worth so much. How he has a friend who's an investment banker, and this investment banker told him that he had a sharp eye for stocks, even though he was only 19. Like, everyone knows this boring guy. Everyone has listened to a 20-minute lecture. I would say everyone who's 40 has, at some point in the last three years, listened to a young person explain Bitcoin for 20 minutes and why it's the future of whatever. And you get so bored with it. It has nothing to do with you. You would have liked a 60-second synopsis of Bitcoin. You don't need 20 minutes on Bitcoin. You don't need a history of Bitcoin. You've heard of Bitcoin. Somebody can just tell you, somebody could tell you what Bitcoin is in about 60 seconds. And you figure that out by the end of a 20-minute lecture on Bitcoin that this did not need to go on this long. Young men, of course, not the only ones who can bore you. But the way that young men bore you, very similar to the way that older men bore you. Like when you show up at somebody's house for the first time and they have a completely ordinary house and they insist on giving you a tour of their ordinary house. And they talk endlessly about all the improvements that they're making on it. They give you a tour. It looks like every other conventional middle-class family home you've ever seen. I take you upstairs. This is the upstairs. Walk down a hallway. This is the downstairs. It's not quite done yet. We're adding a bathroom. The drywall's not... And you're like, come on, have mercy. Get this over with, please. I know this is very interesting to you. It holds no interest to me, though. This looks like every house I've ever seen. 
It's the same sort of phenomenon when you arrive in a stranger's town and they pick you up from the airport and they like lecture you on the whole town while you're driving home. This is where I buy my groceries. I used to shop here. Not anymore, though. And you're like, right, I get it. It's a town. You live here. I really don't know what else to say. Big book, big bore. Get to something interesting. Because this quote is true, I have become more and more skeptical of homework as the years pass. And I'm not some teacher to recommend caring too much about students' feelings and going for this sort of soft, squishy Montessori approach to education. But the more I teach, the more I think homework is superfluous. And I say this especially of reading homework. And I've argued against assigning reading homework many times, many places, many lectures. But if I'm being honest, here's the reason why I don't assign a lot of reading homework. It's because I hate homework. I hate homework. If you make me read something, I'll skim it every time. Every time. Faculty development of my school, skim it. Whatever you give me to read. Shepherding a child's heart, skim it. Recovering the loss, skim it. Skim everything that I'm forced to read. Book club, skim it. And if you ask your students to read something at home, they'll skim it every time too. Why not? It's quicker. Besides, you're going to skim it too. The literature teacher is a skimmer. And you justify it all this, all sorts of different ways. Probably the easiest is, well, I've read it before, so I'll just skim it tonight. You don't want to read it on your own. I love reading stuff in class. But I don't force my students to read it at home because I don't want to read it at home. If it's important, I'll read it here. And I'll show you that it's important by reading it here. If we all read it together, it has a greater weight. And we get to share in that greater weight, and it bears down on us more. There are difficult teachings in classic texts that I couldn't believe if I read them on my own. I can only believe them because I read them out loud to 20 little faces. If you can assign the students to read it at home, what do they need you for? If they can understand it on their own, what do they need you for? If they can understand it on their own, the literature teacher is nothing more than a bureaucrat, a bean counter, a grade counter. But you've got to read it with them if it matters. The only real way of proving to your students that a book matters is to give your time to it. Not to talking about it, not to quizzing on it, but to reading it out loud. If the book can be understood on their own, you're a bureaucrat. But if you read it out loud in class, you're a priest.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.